Welcome, everyone. <coughs> Great satsang already. <coughs> so, welcome to satsang. Before uh, uh, tonight's talk, <coughs> uh, you know, uh, Nataraj's beautiful talk about his mother. Uh, we have another passing of a mother uh, tonight. One of Ganeshpuri's uh, shining lights, the head of a of a bed and breakfast and for many years who we've always uh, had great love for him. Many of us have stayed there. Who stayed at Yogini's place? And um, she passed on this week, Yogini. Yogini Ama. And she's full of love and um, devotion. We'll miss her. We'll miss her tremendously. <clears throat> everything passes on, everything passes on, but the self remains. And uh, so in honor of Yogini, we're going to chant the goddess mantra 11 times. So we'll do that now. We'll put it up. Okay. We'll start with... Uh,
Well, I was thinking about tonight what I would talk about since it's April Fool's Day. <laughs> it certainly doesn't feel like April Fool's Day so far, does it? Uh, but I was thinking about it and I thought there's only one thing, uh, one topic that's suitable for April Fool's Day, and that is Zen. <laughs> because Zen is... Um, an extraordinary discipline which uh, uses lateral thinking and humor to crack through the rational mind so that there's an opening so that higher experience can happen because it's the, that hard rational tendency of ours that keeps us from going deeper, keeps us at that level. And so Zen, the method of Zen is to blow your mind. And sometimes I thought Zen is just one long joke. Uh, and humor has the same effect. Today, the comedians are, are used to break through cultural and intellectual uh, structures and open people to other possibilities. So tonight, my favorite of the Zen masters, Suzuki Roshi. <clears throat> and uh, he had uh, a glint in his eye, a sense of humor. He's a great soul. What else do you have of him? Yeah. And he was, uh, and one more? Uh, he's, he had, uh, he founded a Zen center in San Francisco area and it got everybody meditating there, all the middle-class folks, the real housewives of San Francisco. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> there he was. They were meditating away. Uh, he, um, he, he was born in Japan and studied Zen and came uh, I think in 1959 to uh, San Francisco, came a very popular uh, teacher there, uh, and then he died in the 70s, uh, and his, uh, his center is still, still going on there. And his teaching is very lucid and beautiful. We'll hear from that in a bit. Um, I'll tell you a story. Uh, Zen, of course, traces its... Um, its origins back to the Buddha, uh, and so therefore back to India. Uh, and then in the, it came, uh, Buddhism came to, to, uh, uh, to China much earlier, like in the first century. But in the sixth century, uh, an Indian monk named Bodhidharma came to China, and he really f started the, uh, uh, the movement. And um, I learned a very interesting fact that uh, Bodhidharma is an avid meditator. And he, um, uh, he was once meditating and he fell asleep. He was so upset with himself that he cut his eyelids off. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is both Zen and April Fool's Day, remember that. <laughs> and, um, and he threw them in the ground, and up sprang a tea tree. And that's the origin of tea. And from then on, Zen monks would drink tea to keep themselves awake in meditation. It, look, I saw it on Fox News. It has to be true. <laughs> anyway, he had a big impact, Bodhidharma did. <laughs> and then later in the uh, 13th century, a Japanese monk uh, studied Zen in China. Uh, and his name was uh, Dogen Zenji. And he brought Zen... Uh, to Japan, where it really flourished. And he was the real founder of Suzuki Roshi's uh, lineage. <clears throat> so, we'll go to Suzuki. Let's see. I'll, I'll do this one. <clears throat> Interesting story. This is a, an account by a, a devotee. It says, during an early session with Suzuki Roshi, a session is uh, a long uh, uh, meditation, where you meditate every day for many, many hours, uh, and they really get into it. And, and when I say meditate, they sit, they sit erect, they can't move. You get whacked by a stick if you move. You sit erect and you stare at the wall. Um, so it's, it's really... Strong. So he says, during an early session with Suzuki Roshi, I was having a very hard time with pain in my legs and back. I went to Dokusan, which is the interview with the, the guru, and said to him, when I sit in full lotus, it's very difficult to sit still and concentrate on my breathing. But when I sit in half lotus, my mind is quiet and I'm able to sit still and concentrate on my breathing quite easily. So, you know, full lotus is where the, the legs are entwined, uh, which is very difficult for many people. Uh, you know, the truth is that if you, if you um, lie in bed and never go out and never walk, uh, be, lotus is much easier for you. But if you're active, uh, your muscles get tight and it's very hard to sit in full lotus. Half lotus is, is kind of like Bhagwan. Well, no, no, not in that statue. But it just uh, is a more comfortable and easy posture. I actually learned that. Shall I tell you about that? Did I tell you that? I, um, I, I, uh, I sat in lotus and... Um, you know, you know, Baba would we would do hatha yoga with with uh, Baba in the in the the um, what do you call it the dining room the dining room the dining room every early morning, and I would sit in Lotus. He came by and said, "Very good Lotus," and I tripped on that for at least three weeks, <laughs> and then I would I would sit in Lotus in front of Baba. So anyway, I did have trouble sitting for very long periods in it. And then I got, um, what's the word, jaundice, as one might. 
in, in India. I got jaundice. I turned yellow. And uh, I, I, I was taken to the hospital in, near Bombay and on Derry. And uh, they gave me medicine. It wasn't a serious case. <clears throat> and uh, I got better. But I, I was in bed. And I was in bed for a couple of weeks. And when I sat for Lotus, I could sit easily for a couple of hours. <laughs> so I learned that it's true. That you, you, uh, so I suggest that if you really want to be a, a Buddha, don't let anybody get you out of bed. Just <laughs> but don't live in this ashram because it'll be hard. <laughs> anyway. So um, now if somebody came to me and told me that, that I can sit in easily and and, and concentrate and have great, I would say, what would I say? I would say, sit in half lotus then, right? Being a rational and kindly person. But Suzuki Roshi said, then he suggested, why don't you sit in full lotus? <clears throat> After we talked for uh, a while longer, he suddenly said, uh, oh, excuse me, I forgot something. He got up from sitting with me and left the room. So he was, he's left sitting in full lotus, right? I could hear him going upstairs to where his office was in the meditation hall were located. I could hear him walking down the hall over my head and opening the door to his office. More time passed and I heard the sound of chanting, which meant the noon service was going on. During the chanting, I noticed that I was quite comfortable. Even though I continued to sit in full lotus, my legs and back were no longer bothering me. Then I heard the chanting stop, and then I heard more chanting start, which meant that lunch was happening. I just sat there while lunch was going on and continued to be amazed how comfortable I was feeling. <laughs> then after about another hour, I heard the signals indicating the end of lunch, and I could hear people leaving the hall and coming down the stairs and going out for a break. And then sometime later, I heard the door of Suzuki Roshi's office open and close again, and the sound of him shuffling down the hall and down the stairs uh, where I'd been sitting for over two hours. He came to the door of the room and opened it, came and saw me and said, oh, you're still here. <laughs> he sat down facing me. We continued to talk some while longer Till we concluded our interview. Still, I was not bothered by the pain. Then I went back to sitting in the zendo, <clears throat> and the pain was there just as before the interview. But it was different. Nice story? Okay, so this is... Um, <clears throat> this is uh, a talk that Suzuki Roshi gave. Um, Well, he says, last week one of the Sunday school children saw me sitting zazen, and she said, I can do that. So sitting in meditation. <clears throat> she crossed her legs and said, now what, now what? <clears throat> I was very interested in that question because many of you have the same question. You come here every day to practice zen, and you ask me, now what, now what? Now that you crossed your legs, what do you do now? <laughs> I don't think I can fully explain this point. 
is not a question that can be answered. You should know for yourself. We sit in a formal posture so we can experience something through our bodies. Not by my teaching, but by your own physical practice. And um, of course, Zen, this type of Zen that Suzuki Roshi taught, emphasized uh, Zazen, sitting in meditation. He said, all answers come to you, sitting in meditation. Um, uh, everything will happen by sitting. And you, you adopt the posture of the Buddha. You become one with the Buddha by sitting as he does. You join the whole line of Buddhas and realized beings, and you become one with them. And then after a while, uh, you are insinuated into that state of awareness. He says, <clears throat> however, to be able to sit in a particular way and to attain a particular state of mind is not perfect study. So it's not enough just to be able to meditate well, he says. After you have full experience of mind and body, you'll be able to express it in other ways as well. So from the Shaivite perspective, he's talking about Atma Vyapti and Shiva Vyapti. Atma Vyapti being the ability to meditate well. But that's only half the, the, the deal. The rest of it is what's called Shiva Vyapti, which means taking that state of consciousness into the world, to being living in a meditative state, in that state of centeredness, peacefulness, and connectedness to the Shakti, even while moving about with your eyes open. So this is what he's talking about. He says, without sticking to a formal posture, you naturally convey your mind to others in various ways. You will have the same state of mind sitting in a chair or standing, working or speaking. It is a state of mind in which you do not stick to anything. This is the purpose of our practice. That's how he describes it. We would say it's a state of mind in which you're connected to the Shakti, in which you're connected to the higher energy, to the energy of self, energy of the guru. He says it's a state of mind in which you do not stick to anything. You don't get caught in anything. You're not caught in attachment or aversion, in hating or in desiring. You just the mind is fluid. He goes on. That is why we have Dharma transmission. Zen masters put strong emphasis on transmission. Oh, I should have said, I meant to say, let me see that first thing. <clears throat> I wanted to mention uh, in Bodhidharma, I always like to mention these things. Bodhidharma is associated with uh, what they call the four slogans, the four slogans. These are four aspects of the teaching. Uh, and they are, the first one is a special transmission outside the scriptures. And that means the guru-disciple relationship. It's not just reading scriptures, but it's direct. And that's why you'll see in all Zen stories, all these fantastic stories of gurus and disciples. There's never a Zen story without a guru and disciple. And um, so they really value the, the actual transmission from the guru to the disciple. Second 
of the four slogans, no dependence on words or letters. It's very sort of anti-intellectual then. Uh, it says we're not interested in millions of complex concepts and ideas and, and uh, reading stuff and reading lots of books and so on. Uh, it's experiential. Third one, direct pointing at the mind. So in our terms, we'd say, uh, when, when Baba says, meditate on the self, when Ramana Maharshi says, ask yourself, who am I? When the Sargadatta says, meditate on the I am, it's a direct pointing to the heart of the matter. A direct, go direct to it. And finally, seeing into one's nature and attaining Buddhahood. That's the fourth one. That everyone has the Buddha nature, in our terms, has the inner self. Shiva is within every person. Perfect peace, perfect joy, the clear space of good feeling is available within everyone, but it takes a great deal of skill and application uh, to connect with it. But in principle, it's there within every one of us. And so that's the goal. These are the four slogans. I think they're wonderful. <clears throat> so, so that's why he's talking about transmission, transmission from guru to disciple. He says it's necessary to master the teacher's way completely before you are free from it. This is a very hard practice. That is why it takes such a long time to be a Zen master. It is not knowledge, it is not some power. The point is whether a person is trained enough. <clears throat> At that time, without trying to do anything, you'll be able to express your personality in its true sense. If we cannot see any true personality in a person's work, it means he's not yet eliminated his habitual way. So we all grow up uh, with uh, our culture and with our personality uh, and so on. And there's a deeper truth below culture. Culture is accidental. You're born in this time, you have a certain set of attitudes. You're born 100 years ago, you have a different set of attitudes. You're born 1,000 years from now, you look back on this time, you think, oh, that's really benighted and ignorant, those people were. And uh, so there's a part that's free of culture, and that's authentic. It means the emotions are authentic, the thoughts are authentic, the person is authentic. And a, a, a Zen master will be authentic in all his interactions. He says, that's very cute now, my own habit is absent-mindedness. <laughs> we were reading Gurdjieff and the Chief Fault, <clears throat> Maybe this is what this is. Absent-mindedness would be a very small chief fault, wouldn't it? But anyway. You forget the self. You forget the self. That's true. <laughs> true. <clears throat> I'm naturally very forgetful. Even though I started working on it when I went to my teacher at the age of 13, I have not been able to do anything about it. It's not because he forgot the guy was sitting there, didn't he? I just forgot this, you know. <clears throat> There's a story like that. 
Um, I think it's, uh, uh, was it, who? Namdev or Eknat, one of those guys, one of the Maharashtran saints, uh, his guru said to him, sit there. And uh, the guru came back nine years later and he was still sitting there. <laughs> the guru said, what are you doing? He said, well, you didn't tell me to get up from there. And he was enlightened, of course, because well, something like that. <clears throat> and there was a tea tree very near that. <laughs> so he says, uh, It's my tendency, he says, but working on it, I found I could get rid of my selfishness, my selfish way of doing things. If the purpose of practice and training was just to correct your weak points, I think it would be almost impossible to succeed. <laughs> so your personality flaws, uh, it's very hard to get rid of them. Even so, it's necessary to work on them. So if you're absent-mindedness or something like that, you have to work on them. Because as you work on them, your character will be trained and you'll become free of ego. People say I'm very patient, but actually I have a very impatient character. My inborn character is very impatient. I don't try to correct it any longer. <laughs> it's very cute, isn't it? But I don't think my effort was in vain because I studied many things. I had to be very patient in order to work on my habit. And I must be very patient with when people criticize me about my forgetfulness. <laughs> oh, he is so forgetful. We cannot rely on him at all. What should we do with him? My teacher scolded me every day. This forgetful boy. But I just wanted to stay with him. I didn't want to leave him. I was very patient with whatever he said. So I think that's why I'm very patient with others' criticism about me. <laughs> Whatever they say, I don't mind so much. I'm not so angry at them. <clears throat> you know how important it is to train yourself in this way. I think you will understand what Buddhism is. This is the most important point in our practice. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's a little talk. Cute, huh? What? What happened to do with what? Did he start to remember? No. <laughs> That's not the point. It's to work on it. And he says it refined him in, in other ways, became humble, because he saw he couldn't do anything about it. <clears throat> in the mood for another one? What? It's very Zen. This is very Zen, too. <clears throat> it's my favorite form of Buddhism, Zen. <clears throat> so now he, there's another of one of his talks. He says, in the full lotus position, we cross the right leg over the left and the left leg over the right. Symbolically, the right is activity, and the left is the opposite, calmness of mind. If the left is wisdom, the right is practice. So what's he talking about in Shaivite terms, jnana and kriya, action uh, and wisdom. 
So the, the two legs represent action and wisdom. Interesting? <clears throat> and when we cross our legs, we don't know which is which. Even though we have two, symbolically we have oneness. Our posture is vertical without leaning right or left, backward or forward. This is the expression of perfect understanding of the teaching that is beyond duality. It's called shikantazas, just sitting. Just sitting and becoming one with the Buddha. And getting whacked if you deviate, if you lean. <clears throat> when we extend this, we naturally have precepts and the study of how to observe our precepts. Because the Buddhists have precepts like the yamas and niyamas and yoga, do's and don'ts. And these are, these are kind of like the Ten Commandments uh, designed to help calm the mind. It says, this posture of zazen is not just a kind of training, but it's an actual way of transmit, transmitting Buddha's teachings to us. Words by themselves are not good enough to actualize his teaching, so it is transmitted through activity or through human relationship. <clears throat> Let's sit there for a minute. Let's sit up, and you're sitting in zazen. And, you know, Baba called this guru bhav, and he practiced this, the same thing. He practiced it, and he installed the guru inside of himself, and by doing that, he became psychically one with the guru, and because that's a great energy, great shakti was attracted to him. And so sit up, and now imagine yourself sitting as a Buddha in the long line of Buddhas, and you become one with the Buddha, not only the Buddha, but all the great meditators of our tradition and others, Bhagwan Nityananda, Baba, everyone, and you become one with them. And here you are sitting one with them, and you have your wretched neurotic mind, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's just the wild beast that's in you that will quiet down if you sit as the Buddha. And so this is the idea of Zen, just sitting. Let the mind run. Don't try to control the mind. Just let the mind run. It'll run out of steam eventually. And you sit as one with the Buddhas. Okay, nice. You like that? Did you get a glimmer? Did you get a taste? Did you get a soup song? Get a little something. <clears throat> Doesn't matter. We have plenty of time. We have all eternity to work on this. He says, uh, in addition to precepts, we have the relationship between teacher and disciple. See how much he emphasizes that. The disciple must choose the teacher. And then the teacher will accept the disciple. Although sometimes the teacher may recommend another teacher. <clears throat> Between teachers, there should not be any conflict. So if a teacher thinks another is more qualified, he may recommend him or her. So you go, go over there. <clears throat> Our lineage may not quite be that lovely. 
<laughs> but they, but we should be. We should be. Once you become a disciple, devote yourself to studying the way. The way, the way, the path, the mark, the path of yoga, the higher path. We would call it the path of the shakti. The to keep the mind moving higher rather than lower, towards expansion rather than contraction, towards energy and upliftment rather than misery and, and uh, unhappiness. And this is, the, this is the way. It's the way of the Buddha. It's the way of, of uh, Bhagavan Nityananda. It's the way of all the great beings. is to move towards the divine and away from ego and separation. It's very simple. There are many ways to describe it. And every guru, every teacher uh, talks about it a little differently. But the essence of it is always the same. He says, devote yourself to studying the way. At first, as a disciple, you may wish to practice with a teacher, not because you want to study Buddhism, but for some other reason. <clears throat> Still, it doesn't matter, you know. If you devote yourself completely to your teacher, you will understand. You will be your teacher's disciple, and you can tra transmit our way. There's great faith in simply the practice, just sitting in meditation and just do it. Baba used to say, you know, people go say, Baba, my mind, Baba, Baba, Baba would say, keep meditating. You know, my mind's doing this, and I can't control it. Keep meditating, keep meditating. Great faith in the process, great faith in the shakti that can overcome everything, even these horrible entrenched habits of mind. He says, the relationship between teacher and disciple is very important, and at the same time it is difficult for both teacher and disciple to be teacher and disciple in its true sense. They should both make their best effort. Um, I'm going to skip to uh, where he talks about uh, about how a teacher points out a student's mistake, okay? He says, how a teacher points out the student's mistakes is very important. A teacher knows that a student's mistake is not really a mistake, but a reflection of his nature. <clears throat> That's very important. It's like, in every moment, we are expressing our being our beingness. I liked in uh, the forum they say, what are you being now? When you're sulking, you're being sulkingness. When you're having a tantrum, you're being a tantrum. And so whatever, you know, whatever we're expressing is our nature there. And it's just part of our sadhana, part of our practice. He says, a teacher will respect the student's nature, but also will kindly want to, point, to the point the student in the right direction. The right direction is towards the true self, towards the shakti, towards upliftment. So be very careful about how he points out a mistake. In the scripture, five points are made about how to be careful. <laughs> it's wonderful stuff. 
One is that the teacher has to choose his opportunity and not point out the student's mistake in front of many people. If possible, the teacher points out the mistake personally in appropriate time and place. That's number one. And I would say, except when the teacher points it out in front of other people. <laughs> Sometimes that's necessary to do, and I've seen great gurus do that. <clears throat> Secondly, the teacher is reminded to be truthful, which means the teacher does not point out his disciples a mistake just because he thinks it's a mistake. When the teacher understands why the disciple did so, then he can be truthful. So he has to have, not just, he has to understand it profoundly. The third reminder is for the teacher to be gentle and calm and speak in a low voice rather than shouting. <laughs> this is something very delicate, uh, like truthfulness. But here the scripture puts emphasis on having a calm, gentle attitude when talking about someone's mistake. Again, those, there are exceptions to this rule. <clears throat> I've seen Baba, Baba um, you know, different disciples, they talk about different levels of disciples. Some disciples, even a suggestion, they take it and they, they go with it. And some are more thick. You have to pound them on the head. Uh, and I've seen Baba do an extraordinary, I would love to tell you this story, but I won't. But he created a whole situation of drama because this one disciple who's very close to him was so thick that he couldn't see a certain thing. And he, Baba created a whole play involving many people to uh, do something to him. So I've seen that one time I saw him really do that. And it was a wonderful event. <laughs> and it wasn't even me. <laughs> Baba, Baba handled me by talking behind my back, which is also not scriptural. I was such a little uh, two-year-old with him that he couldn't stand to correct me in front of me because I would fall apart. So he had to correct me at a distance, talk behind my back, and then someone else would tell me about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> they would hurt my feelings too much. <laughs> but when he did it behind my back, I would laugh. I got a kick out of it. <laughs> uh, so where am I? Uh, calm, gentle, right? Fourth one, teacher. <laughs> The teacher gives advice or points out the disciple's mistake solely for the sake of helping him and does not do this just to get something off his chest. The teacher just gets pissed off about something. It shouldn't be just because, you know, wow, you did that. It should be to help the disciple. That's the key. It always should be to help the disciple get on the, the right path. Here the teacher has to be very, is very careful noticing when a student is making some excuse for what he did or when the student is not serious enough. <clears throat> when the teacher, then, then he says the teacher should ignore him until he becomes more serious. 
<coughs> even though we give advice only for the sake of helping the student, still this does not mean we're always easy with the student. Sometimes we should be very tough with the student, or we cannot help in the true sense. And the last one is to point out the student's mistake with compassion, which means that the teacher is not just the teacher, but also the disciple's friend. As a friend, the teacher points out some problem or gives some advice. So he goes on. So it's not easy to be a teacher or to be a student. And we cannot rely on anything, even the precepts. <clears throat> we have to make our utmost effort to help each other. And we do not observe our precepts just for the sake of precepts or practice rituals for the perfection of rituals. We're studying how to express our true nature. Thank you very much. Is that charming or what? That's beautiful. So let us always help each other. And to help each other doesn't, doesn't mean to protect somebody from the truth, but to help people move towards the truth. And, to, and uh, it means to truly want everyone to connect more profoundly with the self and with the shakti, the higher energy of meditation. So let's meditate. And the best way to do that is, of course, to meditate. That's right. The best way to meditate is to meditate. <clears throat> so, you think that was a very good um, choice for, for uh, April Fool's Day? Yeah. <clears throat> so let's meditate in the Zen fashion. I won't have you sit uh, vigorously erect, but you can sit sit up a little bit more than normal, more than your normal slump, your tamasic ooze, your, uh, you know, a little bit, just a little bit. And uh, just sit and have that realization that as you sit, you're joining a great tradition of spiritual giants. All of them attain the goal through inner contemplation and through meditation. And you become one with them all. And it doesn't matter your weaknesses and your personality and so on. Every one of them had to struggle and suffer with whatever their particular characteristics were. They might have too much anger, another one too much uh, depression, another one too much worry and fear, another one too much jealousy. Whatever their, their particular thing is, whatever your thing is, it seems like the hardest thing in the world. But thousands have conquered it. And everyone can conquer it by taking refuge in the highest, refuge in the guru, refuge in the Buddha, refuge in the self, refuge in God, in higher consciousness. And so meditate quietly, turn the mind within, and let the mind go in the Zen manner. Don't try to control the mind, but also don't get caught in the mind. The mind telling you a story, don't go down that way. Just let it go. Don't grasp anything. And just sit quietly 
And as uh, Suzuki Roshi would say, just sit.